In the name of the one holy and living God. Please be seated. Sometimes I get a little bit annoyed by how upside down our scripture readings can be on some Sundays, like this morning. The gospel we just read is set at the end of the Last Supper, when Jesus is teaching his disciples and reassuring them that after he leaves, God will take care of them. God will guide them by sending his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to keep teaching them and reminding them of everything Jesus said. Yet the first reading is from Acts, and it's set many years later, when Jesus' followers are actually following these instructions and spreading the good news, being led by the Holy Spirit. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, says Jesus in the gospel. What reassurance, what practical support. So how do we stay connected to this peace? How do we stay connected to Jesus' teaching? The gospel says the Holy Spirit. And it's easy to get caught up in the awesomeness of this promise, that it can feel separate from us. The Holy Spirit far from our everyday life, something we have to strive for, like a destination. And the stories of what happened after Jesus' death are so very long ago that we sometimes lose sight of how the New Testament is actually chock full of examples proclaiming the opposite. The Holy Spirit is near. The Holy Spirit enters everyday life. The New Testament is full of examples of the Holy Spirit moving amongst the little things we do every day in the lives of people who are like us, albeit of a different era. But their lives were tangled up in the mundane swirl and stress of earning a living, perhaps raising kids, going to work, running a household, and like us this morning, perhaps trying to connect with God. And today, our first reading is an extraordinary story of how this Holy Spirit moves in one woman's everyday life. How the Holy Spirit opens up her heart to eagerly listen to what Paul teaches about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is opening her heart to hear the good news. And in this movement of the Spirit, she is moved so powerfully that she chooses right then and there to be baptized and to have her whole household baptized. And then she invites Paul and his companions to come stay at her home. This is Lydia, the dealer of purple cloth. And she's the very first European to convert to Christianity. Until the last couple of decades, biblical interpretation has favored putting what Paul and his disciples, or Jesus' disciples, did after Jesus' death so far at the forefront that we tend to think of evangelism and spreading the good news as being like Paul and the disciples, going out there somewhere, 
proclaiming to them, this amorphous them, beyond the bounds of our daily life. But Lydia's story turns that upside down. She has a completely different spin on evangelism. Her conversion happened at home, and her conversion at home set in motion the spread of Christianity in Europe. She lived in Philippi, in modern-day Greece, which was a bustling cosmopolitan city at the time and on major trading routes. And her conversion was a catalyst for the rapid growth of Christianity, a holy convergence of the Holy Spirit meeting her spiritual hunger at one moment when she's out worshiping and praying with other women. And all of this is playing out amidst her busy life. She was a powerful businesswoman and a wealthy woman, someone who had her own household, her own economic power, and that power she harnessed to engage people all through Philippi with Jesus. So yes, in biblical times, there actually were economically independent women in full command of their lives, who not only ran their businesses and homes, but were also spiritual leaders. The little descriptor, a dealer of purple cloth, would have said it all to ancient readers. They would not have been surprised, as some of us are this century, that a woman would be in charge of a business and the head of her household. That would be because perhaps she was an unmarried heir to a fortune, or perhaps she was a widow, or if she was a Roman citizen, she could even have been married. Wives remained part of their father's family as well as part of their husband's family, kind of like a hinge between the two. And as a citizen, if she had been a citizen, we don't know, under Roman law, her husband would not have had legal control over her independent property. So husbands and wives, in a sense, lived in legally distinct families, parallel economic lives under one roof. Recently, archeologists excavating a trading colony in modern-day Tur Turkey, an Assyrian trading colony that dates back 2,000 years before Christ, supports this idea of women's in economic independence. The archeologists were stunned just two years ago to discover tablets revealing women ran the production side of the cloth trade. They managed making the cloth. Their husbands were in charge of selling the cloth and of traveling hundreds of kilometers away to peddle their wares. They would be separated oftentimes by many, many months, perhaps even a year or more. And sometimes the husbands even set up separate households in their faraway destinations where they were marketing. So the women, in a sense, were CEOs and managers of the production business at, at the hometown. Now some of these tablets that were discovered had the equivalent of letters on them. And these letters were between the wives and the husbands. And they described the practical, emotional details of everyday life. 
Things like complaining about the mother-in-law, pleading for the husband to please send goats for my daughter's or our daughter's wedding. Other tablets recorded laws that ensured women's rights. Women had the right to participate in trade, to operate their own businesses, and daughters had equal inheritance as men. This is 2,000 years before Jesus. And scholars don't know how much of those laws spread, how long they lasted, but what we do know is that Lydia was a businesswoman, a head of her household. No man is mentioned in the picture. So we know that some of that has carried through to Christ's time. These tablets challenge assumptions that historians for hundreds of years have held about the status of women. And the more historians look at Lydia, the greater the challenge. Because she wasn't only a businesswoman, she was a wealthy businesswoman because she traded purple cloth. People at the time would have known that purple was the most expensive, purple cloth was the most expensive cloth Part of its value is that it was one of the few, that purple dye was one of the few that did not fade with time. The other reason was that it was extraordinarily expensive to produce. This purple dye, called Tyrian dye, comes from mucus secreted by little sea snails. And these sea snails would secrete this mucus to sedate their prey whenever they were attacked or perhaps prodded by humans. And so people would milk these itty bitty little snails for this dye. This was enormously labor intensive. And get this, it took 12,000 snails to produce 1.4 grams of pure dye, which was just enough to color the trim of a garment. Someone dealing with this dye would have been selling this dye and this cloth to kings and emperors and royalty. And that is what the business had been for 1,500 years before Christ. So it was generally understood, anyone dealing with purple, it's like dealing with diamonds today. You likely were very, very wealthy. So Lydia, wealthy businesswoman, dealing with perhaps kings and emperors or people attached to kings and emperors, she likely would have been caught up in lots of the same kinds of pressures that we face today. And in her story, there's another layer of complexity. In, her, in Philippi, she was an immigrant. She was a Gentile. Yet she's described as a worshiper of God drawn enough to Judaism to observe their weekly custom of praying on the Sabbath. So the Holy Spirit brings Paul to Philippi. We know that it's the Holy Spirit because Paul, it says so in the passage before, before what we read, and that in this passage it describes how Paul sees a vision of a man calling him, help, you know, come to Macedonia, come, come to us. Paul follows that prompting and goes straight to Philippi, but it's an over 500-mile journey. 
And along the way, scripture tells us the Holy Spirit forbid him from preaching the gospel while he was en route. Just like Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit is with him. And when he arrives, the Holy Spirit is with Lydia. It's the Holy Spirit in that one moment of worship that opens her heart to listen. It's that one little act of listening in her busy Sabbath day, trying to make room for God amidst perhaps to-do lists and who knows if she had children and running the households and managing employees. She goes to pray and in that one instant of whatever Paul said and however the Holy Spirit spoke to her through him, she decides to be baptized and gets her household baptized. And when she invites Paul and his companions to stay at her home, she invites them in a way that you would think a very strong leader would invite. She insists that they come with her. They kind of have no choice. If we fast forward to Paul's letter to the Philippians, yes, Philippi is the place where the Philippians lived and where that letter was destined, That letter was written many years after this one conversion. And we see in that letter the fruit of Lydia's baptism. Her home became a center of worship. When Paul writes the letter, the church in Philippi has grown and it's the source of financing for Paul's mission work in the rest of Europe. This one conversion, this one baptism sparks this growth, sparks this financing. And Paul writes to the Philippians with extraordinary passion and affection. If you wanna have a quick read of a book, read Philippians and read the love that's in there. It's only four chapters. But he addresses them, my brother and sister, brothers and sisters who I love and long for, my joy and my crown. So Lydia, after her conversion, stayed in place. And the growth of the church and the strength of this community that Paul so loves means that whatever she did in the whirlwind of her life, however she continued to listen to those little promptings or perhaps big promptings of the Holy Spirit, however that happened, God spoke through her to other people. The light of Christ did shine and the church grew. There's no record of her going on missionary journeys out there. She simply harnessed her gifts, her status and her power to spread the good news. An evangelist at home, an evangelist in her everyday life. Perhaps we can think of her as the midwife to Western Christianity, the woman who helped deliver this precious message of love and transformation from Asia to Europe. So the question and challenge for us is how do we bring the good news into our everyday life? How do we proclaim it? She did it, so can we. So maybe this isn't such an, it isn't so upside down to read about Lydia first. 
Maybe after being inspired by Lydia, we read John's gospel and we have the Holy Spirit there to remind us and to teach us about Jesus. And in John's gospel, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Evangelism, the scary word that we're called to. Jesus says, I am sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. We are to shine the light. So we have this gospel to remind us, to encourage us, and continue to teach us about Jesus and his promises. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. It's one heck of a reassurance. Amen.